Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hey Olivia. Hi Micah. Welcome back everybody to the Weekly Typographic. We have a big, big week full of great stuff this week, don't we? Yeah, we do. Tell us how many articles we're going to be talking about. <laughs> we, for everybody who gets the newsletter, we found eight awesome articles that we're going to talk about. Your sweet nerd alert, which hint, hint, is what's the deal with John Baskerville? I'm interested in that. Yeah. And then, of course, shout out to our league members who helped support the league and we're super grateful for. They got links to four awesome fonts this week and four designer-friendly gigs and jobs. Heck yes. So we are going to talk through our sweet eight articles first and then jump into your nerd alerts. Also, can I just say there was like a crazy amount of type and design news from the past week. Nothing that we have to deep dive into, but like figure we should mention it. The beloved Milton Glaser passed away, which you are going to be talking a little bit about on his 91st birthday. He like was a trooper and pretty much worked until his last days. Also, Type Directors Club, the renowned type organization, is dismantling. They were called out by Juan Villanueva for some of the structures that are outdated and need changing. The TDC then came out with a statement saying they are financially out of money and will be dismantling. So that's happening in the type world. Apple is announcing, you know, their new iOS and operating systems that happened last week. So lots of buzz around that as well. There was a conference last weekend where the Black Designers was a virtual conference talking about inclusion in the design community. I know a lot of the videos and panels are going to be up on YouTube coming out soon. Just so much going on. Not to mention recently, we didn't really talk about it because it wasn't much on my radar, but Typographics is a conference that ended, I think, two weeks ago. It happened online for the first time, right? Type Lab happened online. Typographics, the conference did not yet happen. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. But there was a bunch of workshops for Type Lab. There is another type conference, Type Weekend, that's coming out in September. And they just opened for applications for proposed speaking presentations and panels. Which you're like, going so to pitch on. one, right? Yeah. It was your idea, but I really support it. I think you could have a lot of fun stuff to talk about. Thanks. I'm definitely going to have to bounce around ideas with you afterwards. But so, yeah, like, just lots going on. I feel like things are just like buzzing, bees buzzing around my head all with like type news and design Twitter has just been blowing up for all sorts of reasons lately. A lot of good stuff. Um, a big, big scoop of things. So, we're going to jump into our first article this week. And that's from New York Magazine. And it's one of the obituaries for Milton Glazer. Again, beloved graphic designer. He was the creator of the iHeart. And Y logo, he was the co-founder of New York Magazine. He was incredibly influential in all of the graphics we see today. A lot of people were influenced by him. I mean, it's impossible to cover everything and how influential he was. He had so much wit and playfulness and also edge in a lot of his illustrations and graphic design. He really was someone that kind of combined illustration and graphic design to make the best visual communication possible whether that be posters or editorial design or logos he also did the bob dylan poster with the rainbow coming out of his silhouetted head that's really famous so 
One interesting fact I found out from this, which you should definitely read this article, was that I knew that he designed the logo for Brooklyn Brewery, which is also an iconic logo. But at the time, Brooklyn Brewery was a startup, so they didn't have much money. And Glazer said instead of having them pay him a fee, he said he would instead take a stake in the company. And now Brooklyn Brewery is a huge global brand. Yeah, and Glazer has actually said that that was the thing that made him financially independent. So that was Ooh. the thing that kept him, you know, riding taxi cabs and sketching for the rest of his life and made him a lot more money than most of the things he did. I love that. I've thought about that a lot. Are there any opportunities where I could take a pay cut and get a stake in the company, which hasn't come up? And so, you know, I'm not swimming in dollar bills yet. But that's that's actually a nice little mini story I did not know about because that kind of gives me hope. Right, right. I thought it was very inspirational. And I think there's a lot of times when designers have to choose between doing something for passion and for money. And um, it's kind of like a fine line to walk. And I think that was an example of, you know, Glazer really investing in something with his time and then later reap the benefits. Yeah. And a lot of people I know who have been freelance, they put in the time and accept a cut in the money but mm -hmm. don't necessarily take anything in exchange for the cut of the money. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of us who have ever freelanced have been there. If some, some client comes and you really believe in the thing that you're making for them and, mm -hmm. and their potential, and you're like, yeah, I'll do it for less. When maybe, you know, with a little bit uh, more gumption could be like, I'll do it for less if you give me X amount, you know, yeah. I want 1% or whatever. Exactly, exactly. There's lots of good stories that, you know, surround Milton Glaser and his revolutionary hand in shaping the visual landscape we know today. So definitely check it out. And this article um, has a lot of links to work that you exactly. might not have seen too. Exactly. So it's definitely with a sad heart that we lost him last week, but I think it's, there's a lot of great stuff memorialized memorializing him that's circulating currently so our next article the headline is how to tackle a fantastic but scary type brief for nike and it's just a cool showcase of this variable font made by a studio that's i think based in hamburg and barcelona two points and they made they actually sent nike a zine in the mail of for for a different client and nike loved it so much they said hey actually could you guys design a typeface for us so you know unsolicited fun things in the mail do work sometimes everybody i mean i know it's a big thing in the illustration world send postcards of your work to different art directors and they say that still works but it's great to see an example of this and it's a typeface called shizzle because Which it looks like name. it is I know. And they say, I quote, because it looks like it is made with a chisel, but it's more street than the actual tool. <laughs> cool. And they're um, like, actually, yeah, it'd be cool to use chisels for tagging instead of markers or spray paint. I was like, yeah. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be cool too. I think it would take a lot more time to do graffiti with chisels rather than spray paint. <laughs> I think Can that would imagine? create its own problems. Like the police show up, you're like, wait, wait, give me like six more hours. Yeah, yeah, hold on, hold on. Just got to get the serif of this art to match a serif <laughs> that eat one moment. But another cool thing about this typeface, it was actually designed in the animation software. And to get some of the cool like interstitial moments in the variable font transitions they experimented with moving around glass objects to distort the shapes of typography so that's like a very clear visual of how funky and kind of out there this typeface can get and there is a neat animation at the end of this article that illustrates that which i really like yeah really good inspiration to see a really big brand 
you know, seek out talent from a kind of eccentric studio making yeah. making avant-garde things. So excited to see that one. Our next article, eight rules to help you design a better card user interface. Uh, um, I actually found this one because I have been working on on and off the membership section for the league members, sharing the resources in the newsletter as like this searchable archive. And I have been thinking of cards as an interface for the collection of links. And I found this and I was like, oh, this is a good visual before and after, like, here's a bad version, here's a good version, here's details of how to think about it. Some of them were a little basic and some of them were good reminders and some of them were clever things I hadn't quite thought of. Yes. I know that the league and the new website for the league uses a lot of these cards and I've used it in some microsite designs I've done before. But can you tell us like where the everyday person that's not so entrenched in like the tech and design world can see instances of cards being used in the websites they visit? Because I couldn't really think of any. Oh, shoot. I mean, almost every social media site at this point has adopted cards as their main interface element. Like every Facebook post, every Twitter post, essentially. Uh, Pinterest. Pinterest was honestly, I think, one of the beginning ones. I don't know if they were the first, but they've been doing it Mm -hmm. since they launched. I mean, honestly, when I saw the design on this website, I just kept on thinking about dating apps and how that's Mm. basically a card design where you're just like swiping cards left and right on some of them but super interesting to hear that social media insight that makes a lot of sense and i feel very enlightened an easy question a softball i was worried i was like i'm like "Eh, mike is gonna definitely know this though so yeah that's some really great digestible tips i even enjoyed reading this even though i don't do ui ux on a daily basis i think it's still just like good minute details about design that can help all of us designers out there yeah the next article Another article from AIGA Ion Design blog, as everyone knows, my favorite blog, <laughs> and a great title, and that is Knowing Your Design History, Crucial to Aesthetic Innovation. I don't think this idea is new, but I think it's a good reminder of how you know all the design aesthetics and movements do cycle through each other. Design is a cyclical thing, and I think that's most easily found in fashion, but also seen in graphic design. They have some great examples in this article as well. I mean, a great example that I think is something that's relevant today is the Memphis design style was really popular in the 80s and was kind of this like anti-corporate design of bright colors and big geometric shapes. And it was kind of, you know, came from a design house and then became more mass market to the effect that became kitsch or fetishized, as they say in the article, and became almost lowbrow. And then in the past few years, it's reemerged in fashion and design. Camille Walala, who is a great designer, is one of the big leading names that have brought it back to the contemporary day. And so they give an example of that. They also give an example of constructivism and how it's been recycled. And also warning, if you are recycling something like constructivism, you really do have to know the design history of it and the political history to make sure that you're not um, incorrectly appropriating it, I guess. And they talk about that whole idea is if you don't know your design history, you can make some pretty meaningful mistakes moving forward if you decide to recycle an idea. But definitely some great design history briefing. And I'm always down for that. Which honestly, I had never heard of the majority of these movements or people i mean they <laughs> they mention a couple names that i recognize like you know they talk in the middle about uh, christian dior 
in fashion Mm -hmm. and obviously Mm -hmm. everybody's heard of them i think but i had never heard of the memphis style of design and then i looked at it and i was like i've maybe seen things that reference it but didn't know that that's what it was referencing Mm -hmm. and so this this in itself was kind of enlightening because i'd never heard of most of it oh man i'm glad it was definitely like exciting for me to read and they even talk about Shepard Fairey and you know his design studio which I think does actually use a lot of like, appropriation of previous design styles and yeah for sure you know. and actually there's a Twitter thing going around of mm-hmm. in five words or less share how you got into your industry and in just responding to that playfully my first answer was parody propaganda posters where in, in high school, we had like an art and design class. I would make these ridiculous propaganda posters that looked like communist Russia propaganda posters, mm-hmm. but about things like like my nickname in French class. And it, oh my like, God. it would have absolutely nothing to do with it. Like, here's a propaganda poster for cheese. Yeah, yeah. That <laughs> Actually was my nickname in French class, by the way. I was fromage. <laughs> Everybody else was like Jacques. And I was like, no, I am fromage. Apologies to all the actual French people. Yeah, yeah. There's some French people listening that are rolling their eyes right now. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, Shepard Ferry was not as much of a name then. He was like this weird Mm -hmm. underground person. But I for sure did not really understand the history behind propaganda posters other than Mm. what I had learned in world history, you know, high school Mm -hmm. class. So this is a useful concept just to be getting into. I've never been one to research that kind of thing. But since knowing you, and you helping find resources like this it's kind of forced me to be like oh yeah there is a history i don't want to use it incorrectly i should at Mm -hmm. least do a little research yeah and i don't think every designer needs to be like a deep dive historian but i think like there is power in knowledge but that's also why it's awesome that you're doing these nerd alerts they're not all about history but a lot of them because you like history so much have been bringing history into Mm it and it's an easy way to learn a little bit listening to you oh good I'm glad. Our next article actually has some grounding in history. It's a 15-minute read, as It's Nice That says. It is the longest read, an article I've seen on It's Nice That, which is also a great design blog, and it's really worth the read. It's called Stone Lettering and Variable Fonts. How can the future of typography learn from the past? A really similar theme. But this is actually features a lot of des- type designers. It features stone cutters and interviews these people and their craft of designing type or you know cutting stone and how they think that the future of typography can learn from these instances of craft that may almost be antiquated at this point i think there's just some really poetic quotes about typography in here if you don't mind i wanted to share a few so they talked to amsterdam based type designer charlotte road argues that a typeface is simply a visual voice, a physical exhibition of the intonations, emphasis, and nuance of the spoken word. Acting as an extension of the author, typefaces express personal aesthetics and emotional stance. And she tells us that when someone uses her typeface, they weave a piece of my reality into theirs, a duet. It's definitely romanticizing typography and romanticizing letter forms and like just kind of tapping at some truths that I think we do feel and you know typographers and type designers are very specific niche of the world while we may feel like we're in this very broad community to actually be in love with letters is not 
a normal thing. And I think we might not exactly can pinpoint the root to like why we love typography and why it's something that we like live and breathe. And this kind of explores people's deeper thoughts about typography in general and artistry and craft and how is typography going to carry on in the world when, you know, we're making type mostly in digital tools and what does that mean for how our culture is going to see typography? It's a very long, very verbose article, but I think there's really some great nuggets of of poetic statements that I think people will like if they like type. That is a surprising depth to something that I thought was just going to feature stone cutters. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of depth to it and it's not necessarily the most famous celebrity designers in it too. There's designers from all over the world that mostly I didn't even know of. So it's worth giving some attention to this article for sure. I have to say I was a little disappointed because the one stone carver that I personally know, mm-hmm. who is fairly well known, I think he's he's like very talented. I met him accidentally. His name is Wes Adams. Okay. And I met him because he was my best friend's roommate when I lived in New York City. Okay. And then like three weeks after I met him, he was featured by Type Thursday articles. And, and I was like, mm-hmm. wait, wait, hold on. That Wes is the one who mm-hmm. carves typography in stone? Wow. And just the fact that that was even a, a job that still exists. Yeah. On the one hand, I kind of get it from a practical standpoint. Uh, a lot of people need tombs made. Yeah. There's also an interesting take on that in the article as well, saying that when you do stone cutting for gravestones with machines, the the typesetting isn't as polished. Mm. And it, there's some awkward spacing because typically there's not designers that are making, like there are gravestone designers, but it's not the same as a letterer. And so lettering really allows that extra level of polish that people actually do want. And the stone cutter was saying most of his bills get paid with gravestones because that's the thing that they want a human to make. Interesting. Because at least from knowing the one stone cutter in my life, mm-hmm. he was, like you said, one of the people who had the most love of anyone I've ever met for letter forms and typography. Mm, yeah. And he was wildly gifted at that detail beyond mm. even a lot of the digital type designers that I know. Wow. Yeah. What a weird thing that exists still. That yeah. is a good example of like machines can't really take that job. It still takes yeah. a lot of human nuance. I think there's a lot of poetic meaning behind that. There's a lot, lots of poeticism going on. And I think you're just going to feel layers of deep emotions. So get ready. And if we want to kind of veer back to the mainstream, our next article is from Fast Company. And that is AOC, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, if you don't know. AOC's brand was groundbreaking. Now it's inspiring copycats around the world. And the article breaks down all the design elements used within her initial campaign that she ran, which was really popular in the design world and the branding world and talks about how people have been imitating that around the world for political campaigns or even in Italy for a campaign to wear a mask. And so they talk about that. They talk about, they talk alongside one of the studio members of Tandem the studio that made the branding in the first place, Scott Starrett. He's the co-founder and principal. And there's actually a dedicated Slack channel at their company for imitative AOC design, which is funny. But yeah, I mean, I think it's just interesting psychologically that once AOC kind of established, okay, rotated, sheared, 
blocky sans serif type bold people kind of really held on to that as you know an underlying message of like progressive politics and moving the nation forward to this new horizon i think that that not that her design isn't necessarily something new but it was like the timing of it and the combination of specific details that made it actually really stand out and one detail that i didn't know before this is that the blocks of color behind some of the text are actually chat bubbles and so the one chat bubble has english another chat bubble has spanish and that also kind of like you know, there's just a lot of great details in this design that makes it successful that I don't think the imitators can do as successfully because hers has so much thought and concept into the details. But it's an interesting examination, for sure. Also, I don't know history well enough to specifically point out type of propaganda poster, but it reminds me of propaganda posters that I have seen in the past. Which propaganda, I don't mean necessarily in a bad way. Like, this is also a propaganda poster for mm -hmm. her ideology. And it reminds me of revolutionary posters, like posters mm -hmm. for revolutions that mm -hmm. I have seen in the past. Mm -hmm. And there's an interesting reference there that immediately hit home. And that is why it has been so copied so much. Yeah. So copied so much. So copied so much. Also, one thing that makes it stand out, it's not in the typical blue and red that we are used to campaign um, design being in. It's in this kind of like indigo and yellow. Scott Sarrett from Tandem was saying that yellow is actually the fourth color for America because the flag was red, white, and blue accompanied with brass or gold. Mm -hmm. So I think that's like an interesting interesting idea conceptually and then purple then is just the opposite of yellow to stand out i don't <laughs> I think mean, that has much cultural significance in the political yeah. landscape of america yeah but i think it's an, it's a good case study of how changing from the norms can be super beneficial especially in her case so definitely enjoyable read super digestible super quick one moving on to our next article that's how to estimate the roi of design work super fascinated by this and it's kind of like an encouraging article it's from the envision blog and it talks about how to strategize implementing a new design product or process into a company and trying to show the return on investment for design. There's this common idea that design's concrete benefits are kind of vague and kind of enigmatic. It's hard for us to quantify that because design's based off of empathy and aesthetics. It's not based off of numbers. So how do you go about trying to, to you know, maybe convince your manager or convince a client to invest in design and give them some numbers to show how the investment will pay off? And it's a tricky challenge, but they kind of take you step by step on how to do that and how to, you know, kind of think about the fixed costs that the company's already spending. Think about the time that the company will possibly save by using this design. Think about the possible increase in revenue the company will, will possibly get by using this design and how to use numbers um, to concretely move forward with implementing design. I actually found this one this week. And cool. it was especially interesting because so much of design relates to business, but that's not what we talk about very often. Yeah. Yeah. And for freelancers or people who are somehow working for themselves, this is a whole category that almost everyone I know is a little fuzzy on of how to price your services, how to qualify why you priced it the way you did mm -hmm. and how to make more money 
in a way that feels justified and honest. They kind of gave a few examples of how managers and the businessy folks who would be spending the money might think about this stuff, which at least just kind of opens up your brain to a different perspective of making a living from design. Absolutely. I think there are people out there that could definitely benefit from this, if not independents, you know, people in companies as well that have to think about how to move their design forward and kind of being an independent within a larger group and how to be innovative while also convincing others that it's worth the investment. Yeah. When I used to work at that startup in New York, I used to work at an app called Citizen and I was in charge of all their internal tools and I had to come up with ideas that I thought that I should design and build. Hmm. And every few weeks, every month, when there was a new project that I thought we needed to do, I had to basically, you know, they were paying me a salary, so I wasn't pitching money, but I still had to pitch them on why this was a good investment for them. Mm -hmm. So it was a Mm -hmm. constant practice in thinking, this is how this design, like you said, will save you money. I don't know. I mean, a business class I took a long time ago basically said, you're either making a product that is a painkiller or a moneymaker or both. Hmm. That's a good point. I haven't thought about it in that specific way. I'd like to find more articles like this. I don't know exactly how, but hopefully I can find some and contribute more of the like business side of design to what we talk about every week. Um, And speaking of businesses, our last article. And that's, we're not going to talk too long about this. Goldman Sachs made their own typeface. We included this because pop culture. Also, Goldman Sachs did not make it. Dalton Mogg made the typeface for Goldman Sachs. Kind of a new licensing term they have in this typeface. You can download the typeface, definitely. But in the licensing terms, it forbids you to disparage or suggest any affiliation with or endorsement by Goldman Sachs. So you can't talk crap about Goldman Sachs if you use this typeface, and you can't say you're affiliated with Goldman Sachs if you use this typeface. It is for limited use. (laughs) It's just kind of funny. I don't know. I had to share it. Now, anytime you find a link to a free font, it is worth reading the license to make sure that there's not some weird thing like that that you don't know about. And I haven't read this in detail because I don't plan on using this. But mm-hmm. it's just interesting that, that they get to like, that's such a vague legal stance. I can't imagine how that would be enforced. I mean, the typeface in general is like very clean, digital looking, uh, future forward, something adult and mag, mag, we never will know, makes. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it, it's nothing revolutionary though. But I, I get it. Goldman Sachs is probably paying a bunch of money in bonds licensing and they want to jump on the bandwagon of creating their own custom type yeah so. and they I, I would love to be a fly on the wall in here like okay we're already paying for this typeface why make it available there's lots of companies that i understand but like i don't think netflix's custom font is available to use right exactly like, yeah no there's a bunch that aren't available like ubers isn't available to download Right. And so that that makes sense from the stance, you know, if you don't know what we're saying, basically, we've kind of touched on the topic before that a lot of companies in the last 10 years, five to 10 years have been commissioning custom typefaces because paying to use someone else's typeface in all of the different mediums that they need it adds up. And so to spend the money once and be able to use it for forever on whatever medium you want is often 
a good idea for a big company to spend a bunch of money on. It's just weird that they would release this, but with like, it says a revocable license. If yeah. we don't like you using it, we'll just let you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's just funny. So share it with your friends. I'll get a good chuckle. So Micah, I think it's it's time. Oh, I forgot our tune. What was it? Bum, bum, bum. Nerd alert. <laughs> you do it better because you have a lower voice. We're talking about John Baskerville this week. We're talking about John Baskerville and Baskerville. The font. John Baskerville's fonts were not called Baskerville, which I find so fascinating. Ooh, that's a fun teaser. So let's get right into it. John Baskerville, <laughs> born 1706, lived until 1775. He was um, best known to all of us currently as an English printmaker and type designer. But in fact, he made his money Japaning and paper macheing. That was how he was able to start being a printmaker and type designer. What is Japaning? What is Japaning? <laughs> Old word that I don't think you'll hear outside of this podcast ever again. And it's actually the craft of applying de decorative acrylic lacquer. You sound real confident in that. Japaner makes objects with decorative lacquer. And it's an imitation of Asian lacquer work. That's, That's Japaning. What the heck? Yeah, it was a European thing. I mean, colonialization and their tactics. Of course, they made Japaning into a verb. It just sounds so bad even saying it these days. Yeah, for but, real. What on earth? I can't believe that was a thing. I've, and I've never heard of that. Okay, so that's what he got paid to do? Yeah, yeah. So type designing and printmaking was his side hustle, basically. And if you're not familiar with Baskerville, um, currently is a font that is installed on many computers and is used a lot. It is known in the category as transitional because Baskerville connected the old style of typefaces like Garamond and Times Roman to the modern high contrast hairlines of Dido and Bodoni. I think in history, we see it as a linear thing, like old style with Garamond and Times New Roman happened, and then Baskerville happened, and then Bodoni happened. That's not exactly how it worked in history. Bodoni and Dito were being developed while John Baskerville was developing his fonts. It just so happens that his felt like a transitional between the two different styles preceding it, and then what became popular afterwards. So yeah, Baskerville's a... Uh, Great typeface. I love it. It definitely like carries an authority and gravitas towards it. So his fonts, like I said, they were not named Baskerville. His fonts had really dry names. They're actually just the names of the size that the font was at. So he would have a cut that was called Great Primer and another cut called Two Line Double Pica Header. So, <laughs> awesome. oh, sorry. Two-line double pica italic caps was one of them. I love that naming scheme. Yeah, not creative. Not interested in being creative, but there we go. So I mentioned an uphill battle on their album artwork. Here's the deal. People were not fans of Baskerville's type. They He got very little success while he was alive, very much like the Van Gogh story. You know, just like didn't make any money, died, not rich and then later became really famous for his work. He was largely criticized because people thought that the narrowness and the thinness of the letter forms was so hurtful to the eye, <laughs> as they claimed. There's also a theory that a lot of people, a lot of critics were really jealous because he was a huge innovator as far as the technological achievements he was able to do with his 
typeface design and his printmaking actually because he created a paper that was woven and had a very uniform surface so before there was kind of like this roughness or bumpiness to a lot of the paper that was around and because the surface was so smooth when he printed his type the thin thins turned out really clear and crisp and so did the thick fix so it was like high def type making wow. he did have a few fans john battista badoni who created the famous Bedoni, was a big fan. You can kind of see the connection there, making similar stuff. Benjamin Franklin, though, was also a big endorser. Benji. Benji, the printer in America. Who that also, also did- makes sense. He was very into typography and printmaking so and technology. He, yeah, exactly. Like, it, it just totally makes sense. He brought Bas- like Baskerville's fonts over to America and was trying to promote them. I appreciate that, Benji. <laughs> um, so they were made in the 1750s. So 1750s means that John, he was like middle age when he started making type design and printing. So but he started that in the 1750s. When he died in the 70s, his widow, Sarah Eves, um, mm. which yes, is what Mrs. Eves' typeface is based off of. Sarah Eves sold his type to dramatist who was looking to keep it for the literary and typographical society. Okay, that was the 1770s. It was used very sparingly, like when time has passed from the late 1770s to the 1800s, but it really wasn't popular again until the 1900s and then it had a lot of cultural relevancy a lot of type boundaries monotype and linotype had their own cut of baskerville fonts and then finally named them baskerville not Mm. like great primer double pica etc etc (laughs) so it became popularized again in the 1950s to portray authority and tradition so his fonts have survived for 250 years i mean part of that i gotta add to that timeline too that was there was someone made uh, Simon Pascal Klein made Open Baskerville, which was mm. one of the first open source fonts that I had ever encountered and inspired the league a lot. That's awesome. I mean, I didn't know that. I mean, there are a bunch of different Baskervilles floating around currently. In 2010, Apple offered Baskerville among its five reading typefaces for its Apple Books app, Hmm. which is interesting. So it's lived on there. And then, you know, just to cap off the story, I got to say, Baskerville, well, he has been memorialized and has left a legacy. He did not rest in peace. And while I was reading just my type to get some info about Baskerville. They said he was, quote, a movable type, unquote. Let me explain. Baskerville asked to be buried vertical into the ground because he was not into religion. I, I like this. So I just got to cap off the story. So into this. So he's buried vertical because he was like not about religion and he wanted to do things differently. Such a Baskerville move. But years later, they found his grave at a totally different site near some gravel. Because whoever took over the grounds where he was buried dug up his grave and dumped him somewhere else. What? And so they literally found his grave years later. I think almost everything was intact on his body except his eyes. What? They, like, basically found him rotting, kind of. But apparently a lot of things still looked very, like, very elegant and nice. And so from this, from when, after they dug him up again, then he went to a churchyard. But then that church closed. <laughs> so his his final resting place is, is in a totally different site from the church, and it's bricked up currently to prevent vandalizing. So 
he didn't really get a proper memorial for his body. Really, his art has lived on. His body has been smoothed around. So feel so bad for this dead man. Wow, that's a wild twist at the end. Truly an uphill battle from beginning <laughs> to end to after the end. That's so depressing. My gosh. Oh, I know. Fascinating. I know. So that's what I got for everyone this week. That might that be my I might have to make that my last wish too now. That's just yeah. No, no. I'm I want to do a vertical. Put me put me right first in the ground. It must be like a typical hole to dig. Yeah, but very deep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Fascinating, strange, weird detail. I like it. Love some good typist. It's cool to talk about something related but unrelated to type two. I feel refreshing. <laughs> All right, Micah. This has been a good, it's been a good one. Yeah. All right. So let's cap off by saying, hey, thanks for listening. Fun times. It is super fun doing this. We are definitely looking for sponsors, by the way. If anybody is interested in contacting us about something that fellow type nerds might love to hear and read about in the podcast and the newsletter. So hit us up. Our email's on the website. You can reach out to us there. And... Thanks to everybody listening. Thanks to all the league members. Thanks to Olivia for always doing fascinating research. Just here to make more nerds nerdy. (laughs) Nerdier. And with that, we will see you for a fun time next week. Ciao.